Okay, good, good. Hello, welcome, good afternoon. What I'm going to be doing hopefully over the course of the next week, and we're going to have to move quickly and rapidly, is I give a class on um, introducing beginners to Gemara. And, and generally my, my class is um, given to rabbis to teach them how to teach beginners to Gemara. Um, so I'm in the middle of giving this class to two two to three I can see three separate places at the time and one of the guys said we, sp- we had some guys over from the center and they said to me they said to us that you don't teach beginners Gemara so they said like you spending here because time telling us how to teach Gemara to, be- to beginners and you actually don't do that yourself what's the deal so I explained to them I do do it myself but whatever 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 but then I thought to myself what a stupid thing that there's an air of expertise which I really like to share with you and I'm not so I thought, okay, well then I will. So how would I do it? So I'll pretend it's Musa. And then everything will be great. <laughs> so this is actually nothing to do with Gemara at all. This is just Musa, but it has to be introducing you to the Gemara now. The first thing, and this is how it all begins. Can you pass me a Chumash, please? So we're going to go through the, the, the evolution of how we come to the what, what's called the Talmud. And we're going to begin with what would happen when a group of completely unaffiliated um, motley crew of gentlemen who come on the summer program and they, they've got tank tops and they've got massive tattoos and they're completely hung over from their previous night's activity and they arrive in the class and they have a class of Talmud so you're going to make it a little bit engaging because otherwise they're just going to fall asleep or they see me coming to anyway so I say to them hi gentlemen how are you doing good morning good morning good morning good morning good morning hi good morning um, uh, do any of you realize, recognize this book Interactive. Do any of you recognize this book? What is this book? Um, yes, uh, uh, Jeremy, what is this book? This is a Chumash. Now, if I asked you a question and I said, would you believe in this book? What would you answer? Yes. Well, I hate to break this to you, but you're wrong. And it's not because I'm reformed. It's for a completely different reason. For example, what would happen if one fine Sunday morning I'd be sitting here, sharpening my right index finger, waiting for the approach of my victim would be walking down the street, and I'd be looking with eager anticipation. He wouldn't see me because I'm imagining as if I'm behind a corner. And as he comes within arm's reach, I swing, thrust, turn, extract! And I have in my hand his eye. Sheepishly, I place his eye in my pocket and make as if nothing has happened. <laughs> Unfortunately for me, two witnesses have spotted this occurrence and dragged me off to a Jewish ecclesiastical court of law where the three judges, dressed in solemn black, their white beards cascading over their garments, look at me with a stern expression on their face, and I plead innocent. Um, they look at me and they say, Siegel, we see you have your hand in your pocket. Could you please extract it? And reluctantly I do. They notice that the hand is blood-stained, and they say, Open up your fingers, sir. And as I do so, they see the eye of the victim, whose name is Shimon, firmly placed in my hand. Shimon, grasping onto the hollow cavity that once was his eye, stumbles forward, saying, He's the one, he's the one, and he's substantiated by these two witnesses, who then present their case to the judges, and the judges say, Well, gentlemen, we'd better look and see what it says in the good book. So they open it up to chapter 21 of Exodus, verse 24, and they say, gosh, what an easy answer. Here it says, open and explicitly, an eye for an eye, a tooth 
for a tooth. How's that? Well, they say, Siegel, you just go stand against that wall. Shimon, who's now lost his binocular vision, come and see if you can poke out a granted, slightly <laughs> handicapped. See if you can get his eye out because it says an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. So I stand there while he tries to poke again. <laughs> but our three-dimensional sight is not so easy until eventually he manages to insert his finger, twist and curl and extract. <laughs> so one thing is clear. And that is, even though it says in the words, an eye, an eye, an eye, four, and I <laughs> what it means is monetary compensation now this is absurd because the words say an eye for an eye so why in the world did we make this gigantic departure from what the words say to this conclusion which it seems so 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 much more comfortable for our legal brains that what's the point of two people walking around one eyed when in fact what this person would much rather have instead of you being one died as well is a full um, recompensation for what's happened to him so it makes legal sense but how does the words which say an eye for eye travel to this interpretation so there's something you have to realize that when the Torah was given on Mount Sinai in the year 1313 before the common era there were two Torahs given here you have Har Sinai and you have two Torahs one was written and one was oral. And the relationship between these two Torahs, both forming halves of a single whole, is that the written is a code. It really is a code. And therefore, when I told Jeremy that the Jews don't believe in the Bible, I was absolutely serious. We don't. Because if you actually read and translate the words here, very often, not only are they superficial, they actually say the opposite to what they should. An eye for an eye. does not mean an eye for an eye. And that is repeated throughout the written Torah. That the words don't mean what they say. Why? Because it's a code. And comes along the oral Torah, which was given simultaneously to Moses on Sinai, every time a verse was spoken to him and told to him by God, he, the interpretation of what the verse actually meant was given to him simultaneously. So he was told what the verse means, and he was told what it meant. But how does it relate to a code? Well, it went one step further. Because God realized that this document was going to travel through time and space, he figured out a way of allowing Jewish sages and people enlightened in the study of the wisdom of Torah the ability to unlock the meanings based on a decoding system which would provide an availability to the student when he knew the code breaker to extract the real meaning from the verses in their misleading form. Now the way a code works is you take a sentence and based on agreement, agreement between you and the other you replace, cert replace certain words or ideas with others. So for example Mali, if I would like to hire you to become a spy in Afghanistan and we agree that when I said the words when you send me a message saying Auntie Jemima is having scones for tea I would know that that meant there's troop movements to the north 
So a person intercepting that message will go, Oh my gosh, who would have thought? Afghanistan, someone called Auntie Jemima, and scones. How glorious and fascinating the beauty of British culture. However, the real intent of your message would have been troop movement to the north. Only when you're privy to the code are you aware of that. So one of the advantages which can really be asked is so why do it this way? Why not just have a big long written term? Why have the written oral component? So the first example is that the first reason is that if you want to protect the message and allow only the people who are in it to be in it the best way of doing so is creating a code. The Torah that we have it is the specific legacy and inheritance of the Jewish people based on a variety of different historical events which led to their intimate moment at Mount Sinai and a covenant was sealed between the Jews. A covenant means a contract. A binding contract was sealed between the creator of all worlds and the Jewish people to perpetuate his message throughout time. That was given a specific task. And since it was limited to them, Hashem said, here's the code, and this is how you break it. And you pass this on from generation to generation to generation. And that's your legacy, and that's your purpose, and that's your mission. It's your mission. Other people got other missions. This is your mission. So it's amongst you. So you know the code, and you know how to break it. Everyone else can read the Bible, but you know what it means. Because what the Bible says it doesn't mean. The Jews do not believe in the Bible. Clear? That's what happens. So you have this oral law, and it decodes the written law. Now, another important factor of the oral law is in the manner in which it decodes it. It doesn't only provide a different understanding from the simple text. It also allows a very crucial legal thing, which is called the development of principles. Without the development of principles, ideas become frozen in space and time. So, for example, there could be a law which would be invented in Britain that... um, carriageways have to be left open from the hours of 7 to 9. And the reason being is because from the hours of 7 to 9 um, that's when the horses are blute and therefore you create a place which you don't create more than enough garbage in the public domain. Now that's great. What happens when the mode of transport shifts from horse-driven carriages to cars? So then obviously that law becomes absolutely and utterly irrelevant. So the minute you have a purely literal document written, it becomes as relevant as the time and the place it was written in. The minute you leave that time and you leave that place, the document becomes essentially irrelevant. What creates universal relevance, both in time and space, is the capacity to develop principles which you can then reapply in new situations. So in terms of time and place, it says you shouldn't light a fire on the Sabbath day. That's great when the major form of illumination was provided by fires. But now I want to switch on the fluorescent light. Can I? I can't on Shabbos. Now, if you have no oral law, which means a development of legal principles from the written text based on certain limitation parameters, so it's not just a free-for-all, if you don't have that, you say, well, don't know, can't deal with it. The only way of transporting the Torah throughout time and space is that the written word can be A, decoded and B, based on the strict parameters allowed principles to be developed which would then give us the momentum to go forward and encounter new situations based on ancient precedents. 
which means that the sugya of artificial insemination is a sugya which is dealt with in the Torah and therefore we don't have to have any doubt what our approach should be when the situation comes up. You follow? So that's why the orator is needed for two reasons. To allow the development of principles, firstly, and secondly, to create an intimate and constant relationship in terms of what's going on between the Jewish people and their God and that continues, that continues, that continues from the level of something as out there as Talmud and obviously much deeper to something which is in there as Kabbalah sorry, the secrets it becomes a complete and total part of the dialogue that continues when you have a relationship with a person and everything you say can be broadcast to the world it limits the capacity of connection that you can have with that person when the relationship is between you and him between you and her so then it's the intimacy is reflected by the exclusivity so there you've got that now what happens is as follows this is in the year 1313 and for the next 1500 years this oral transmission, the decoding of the written law occurs from Rebbe to Talmud, Rebbe to Talmud, Rabbi to student, consistently. Now in order for that to work effectively, there has to be a very strong educational infrastructure which facilitates that. There has to be a lot of students, a lot of rabbis, all competent in knowing these vast amounts of information to the degree that there was actually a prohibition to write down any oral Torah wasn't allowed to be written down because again not only did you want to maintain the flexibility and the uniqueness and exclusivity but there was also a further concern the further concern was that Judaism can't be learned from reading a book it's also about the feeling that you get which can't be verbalized when you connect to a Rebbe so it's not only about the information the information and the way it's given over and the tone and the dynamic between student and Rebbe has to be maintained as well. So that only occurs through the oral transmission. And this happens faithfully for 1,500 years. You get to the year 200 of the Common Era. And here you have Rebbe Yudanasi. And he decides that something has to change. Because he sees and foresees that Roman oppression is increasing. And there's nothing like a few Roman... Gl- a few Roman... Um, what they called? Roman soldiers? Not gladiators, I want to say gladiators. A few Roman centuries, maybe. There's nothing like a few Romans barging into the classroom and with, with big spears and trying to threaten you with your life to disrupt classroom decorum. It's very distracting. When you're trying to learn a complicated Mishnah and you've got Roman soldiers threatening to kill you. It kind of, it's not good. It's not good for like... So you realize that the foreseeable future of Jewish tradition was deeply threatened because impression was, oppression was increasing and he was conflicted. He had a dilemma. On the one hand, if he w- was not to find some way of documenting and writing down this incredible corpus of laws, he may lose it. I mean, the Jewish people as a whole. On the other hand, if he writes it down, so then he gets into the problem of making a written document. So in his genius, he invents a new thing. Brand new. It's called a Mishnah. Now, it's brand new in terms of its presentation, but of course it's ancient in terms of it's just a new way of presenting the Tosha Baal Peh, the written, the oral term. And what he does is as follows. He says, I want to keep the, the, the law oral, but I want to write it down. But I want to keep it oral, but I want to write it down. So what am I going to do? I'm going to write it down and make it oral. How can you do that? If it's written down, it's written. And if it's not written down, it's oral. But it can't be written down and oral! 
using vicious thumb movements. By the way, when you do teach beginners Talmud, you have to introduce them, of course, to the usage of the thumb and the sing-song intonation, making sure that if you have a wide arced thumb, the zenith of the thumb coincides with the gruff intonation. So what happened was his place of the dilemma. On the one hand, if he were to write it down, he'd lose the oral law in its entirety because it would be written. On the other hand, if he would leave it unwritten, it would be lost and therefore would be a tragedy to the Jewish people. Problem. How does he resolve it? To create a Mishnah which provides this twilight zone between written and oral. Yes, it's written. No, you can't understand anything from the Mishnah. It says this, it means that. It's got massive words missing. There's not enough information. There's just not enough information to make sense of it. In fact, the command so says, if you read a Mishnah and you pass in the course of the Mishnah by your reading of it, you will destroy the world. Because the Mishnahs cannot be taken on a literal level. Because they are not written. How do you get to the bottom of a Mishnah? You analyze it. And we're going to go into, hopefully in the course of this week, the 353 Mishnah analysis technique, which allows us a, a, a clear method of approach of how to analyze a Mishnah and then everything will be glut and good, you'll all be happy and will defeat the ultimate enemy of the Tomic student who will be introduced to at a later stage in the game. Now, Rebidot invents a Mishnah. The Mishnah is an incredible, incredible educational invention and it allows us to explore, understand, derive and but there's just not enough information. So the way that you get, you unlock, you unpack the Mishnah is twofold. First of all, you employ the full range of cognitive skills, but there's always something a little missing. And therefore, you need that teacher to fill in the gaps. You always need to connect to that generation above you. But it's not as vast that the, the infrastructure of connection had to be so sophisticated that it would be threatened by oppression. So it's still there, but it's not sustainable. So as you can imagine, in the course of the next 300 years, incredible wealth of literature evolves around these Mishnayas, predominantly in the study houses of Babylon, where most of the Jews are located. And then finally, in the year 500 CE, the Talmud is sealed. Now what is the Talmud? The Talmud is a combination of what's called Gemara and Mishnah. What's Gemara all about? Gomorrah was the way the Jewish world reacted to the presentation of Rabbi Danas's Mishnahis, solved them, went into discussion, reasoned about them, brought proofs, found seeming contradictions, and put them together. And this occurred all over Babylon. What Ravina and Ravashi did, the two sages that redacted the Talmud, even though they finished this in the year 435, of the common era. It took another 65 years for it to become sealed by their students and children. Ravina Ravashi said, what we're going to do is we're going to compile all this incredible Torah that's evolved around the Mishnahis into something called the Gemara. Now, they were, con- they were concerned about one thing, because the truth of the, of the matter is, when you look at the Gemara, and you're uneducated in what Talmud is, you'd think, oh my gosh, these people were poshant backwards. They were backwards. They had no clue what they were doing. Because I know that if you want to present information, look at any textbook. First of all, the textbook has a title which tells you what the subject is and usually has a subtitle. It doesn't say something like, the last gate. Oh, what's the last gate talking about? 
Um, well, maybe it's talking about gate manufacturing. Maybe it's something really metaphorical and mystical. No, no, it's talking about land ownership. Oh, of course, the last gate, land ownership. How posh it, a simple connection. The, the titles I'm seeing, the, the chapters aren't necessarily informative. And then the system, the, the structure is so misleading. Do me chapters, start with headings, have a table of content, punctuation, paragraphs. And instead, no punctuation, no paragraphs. Sentences are half completed and ambiguous. Basic background information is completely left out and deleted. What are you doing? Are you insane? <laughs> what were Ravin and Ravashi up to? The Gemara Brachas describes the Talmud in a fascinating way. It says it's called Shimush Talmidei Chachamim. It's called an apprenticeship. Now, when I'm an apprentice to, whatever I'm an apprentice to, let's say, make it simple, shoemaker, what do I do? See what I do? I make him tea. And whilst I make him tea, I say, ooh, look at the way he thread that thread. And I'm a little bit con- And then he says, why don't you try it this way? And I try it this way. He doesn't sit there and give me two hour lectures. I live with him. And I imbibe his spirit and his way of doing things. And I say, okay, that, and I feel it and I get it. Says Ravin Ravashi, giving over to Shalpa and the information is not enough because the information will expire. What we want to do is we want to design the ultimate educational model that will allow Jews throughout the history to develop the entirety of the full range of cognitive skills like synthesis, analysis, comparison, contrast which will then empower them to be able to take pieces of information the truth of the Torah understand the situations that they are presently in and apply and implement those laws because if they are cognitively deficient they will not be able to create an eternal Torah because they won't have the Chochmah to do so so what we're going to do is we're going to create this incredibly sophisticated educational model which deliberately doesn't complete sentences why? because then you've got to use your noggin it deliberately leaves out background information so that you have to think one second what could that mean could it mean this could it mean that promotes discussion it deliberately leaves sentences ambiguous because then you have to go through a process known as hypothesis well one second let's think about what happened five stages about if this happened and that happened then this but if this happened so this thing what does it make you it makes you downright clever when you're clever then you can turn Torah into life but if you just know rules, your Torah and life will never go, because things are subtle, and they dark, and they sophisticated. So unless you're so well trained and schooled in the art of thinking, you will never, ever be able to do it. So what does the Gemara teach you how to do? It teaches you how to think. Why is it designed in the way it's designed? To teach you how to learn. And therefore the Gemara says as follows. You've got this Mishnah. How in the world are you going to learn how to analyze Mishnahs? I'll tell you what. Jump into our shoes. Join us in the base Medrash. We're not going to present you the information. One thing about teaching is the worst kind of teacher is a teacher that stands up there like this and says, Hi guys, all the information, here it is. You sit there, be sponges. Whoa, wisdom. Whoa, wisdom. And you go, thank you, thank you, thank you. That's not teaching. I don't know what that is, but that's not teaching. What teaching is, I only give you the bare minimum that you need so that you can say one second but based on what you've said let's think so I just tease you until boom you switch in your brain you're like one second and that's why 
the Talmud is replete with questions like sky over clouds in the English sky. It's all over because it's training you to think, training you to think, to ask questions, to develop your way of being. And that's what the Gemara does. And that's how it teaches you to become a participant in this everlasting base measures. And it never stops. And what you say and share is of utmost importance because you're now the next stage in this ever evolving Talmud. And you're the next Gemara that's saying your day provided you're doing it with thought out Seichel the most incredible thing never in the history of the world has such an advanced method of how to teach people to think been available and that's why that's why Jewish people have always been because of the Talmud intellectually advantaged over people that don't have access to this incredible incredible mechanism if you know how to use it if you know how to use it there are many people I regret to say they learn Talmud not for days not for weeks for years and they still don't get it meaning they don't get it that it's teaching them how to think they just go with it as if it's information just presented in exceptionally clumsy fashion oh how tragic oh how mournful right why, why uh, did they carry it on in Aramaic and not Russian and Kurdish isn't that not the whole so, so, so simple answer is because they recorded the debates in the language that they were said they weren't there to make a written document and that reflects the nature of this, this isn't about having something a text it's about what your noggin tells you it's about the spoken word not the written word so on the contrary it's much more effective to put it into the spoken than the vernacular giving us the lesson today it's not, the Talmud the oral law is always oral the general the oral law is the oral law is a discussion between you and your Chavrusa when you're sitting in front of the Gemara trying to and we'll, I, I'll try to explain how this all works but the oral law is never written down the oral law is happening right here and right now when you have a discussion in turn but for today's information I just want to present that the relationship between the Aura and the written Torah, what the Gemara is, and hopefully over the course of the next few days, next three or four days, I will go into the basic method of analysis of how do you do, how do you analyze a Mishnah, a Gemara, a Rashi. Maybe we'll stop at the Rashi analysis and I'll go into the Tosis. You following me? I hope that brought some clarity. I hope we'll bring even more clarity. And I thank you for your rapt attention and look forward to tomorrow.